As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Well, today on the show, we're going to be tackling some of your pastoral questions. Um, And we do this every so often. Uh, We sort of did it a little bit last time, actually, Tom, looking at some specific Mm -hmm. marriage issues. Um, But today, it's it's a whole range of different questions that have come in. And right at the top, we're going to make our usual caveat when we discuss these kinds of questions, that you're not here to be anyone's pastor online. Uh, We always recommend people have someone they can speak to, go to. Um, I mean, this is essentially part of the duty of a parish priest, isn't it, in the Anglican tradition? They are there, at least if not to personally be that, they can give you, put you on to someone. They can can put you on somebody who can, yes, yes. And it seems to be part of the pastor's job is to know when to say this is above my pay grade and certainly in terms of sitting here with a microphone this is not how to do pastoral work but so we can nudge in the right direction but the local person who can pray with you and follow you in your journey is is what you need but nevertheless um, people do often write in with pastoral issues of one sort or another Um, we've got some quite um, you know, tough ones coming up, but I'll start with something that may be a little bit, a little bit more general. Um, this was an interesting question from Victor in Switzerland, uh, which I can, I can see why this question comes from Switzerland, actually, as I read it. Um, it says, in the prosperous Western world, much of our time and energy involves innocent worldly pleasures, a good meal with friends, hiking in the mountains. That was my Switzerland <laughs> reference. A seaside holiday, cultivating the garden, watching an entertaining film. But how does this square up with do not love the world or anything in the world? First John two fifteen and Jesus's admonitions to hate our lives even. So I think Victor's feeling a bit guilty for enjoying, <laughs> you know, the mountain hiking, the seaside holiday, a good film. Says, didn't Jesus say we should, you know, hate our lives and we're not supposed to be enjoying life necessarily? Um, has, has Victor yeah. got this the wrong way around? I don't know. No, I think th- those those very strict commands about about hating your own life etc are necessary always to be there because at any moment god may say okay it's time for you to go and be a missionary in the wrong part of africa or whatever and i want you to give all that up and go and do that and victor and i and anyone else needs to be prepared to say okay this has been really important to me but i guess it's now uh, it's now going and hating in the vivid way that um, early Jews used that language and loving indeed 
doesn't necessarily mean absolutely um, loathing it. It just means being prepared to say no. Mm -hmm. And loving there doesn't mean um, enjoying. It means giving yourself totally to it in such a way that it will be impossible to Mm -hmm. to pull back. Um, And there are many things. um, uh, Of course, because this world is God's world and it's a good world and we humans are meant to be in it, then everything from music to flowers to mountains to the sea, etc., is is ours is given to us to enjoy. Paul says in First Corinthians that all things are given to us to enjoy and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. He's talking about food, mm. but I think the principle applies much more widely. So that, yes, if, the, if that's what you find enjoyable, you know, my wife and I love walking by the sea, which is why it's so hard for us to move to Oxford, which mm. is about as far from, you, mm. from the sea as you can get. But we, we don't say, oh, dear, were we enjoying this too much? But if somebody had said to us, you've got to move to Oxford, we said, no, 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 we must be by the sea, and we're not moving it, then one might think, uh, actually, yeah. there's a renunciation which has got to happen there. And, and I, I, perhaps it's good to keep in balance the fact that it's evident from the Gospels that Jesus enjoyed himself. You know, he yeah. rescued a party from, a- absolutely. from, you know, when he turned water into wine. There's a sense in which he's not saying we must renounce all sure. of these. You know, and he relishes, he relishes the created order. Yeah. Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow and reap and gather mm. into bars. God looks after them. They're just having a good time, you know. Right. And so and Jesus is enjoying the natural world as the natural world is enjoying God, as mm. it were. Yeah. Uh, and so there is that sense of relishing the goodness of God's creation, which I, I is I suppose like anything, biblical. it's ultimately about not making an idol of those yep, things. Exactly, if, if, exactly. If our ultimate idol becomes improving our golf handicap and yeah, you know, then and you know my you know bringing people to jesus mm-hmm. becomes some kind of very secondary thing yeah, and obviously yeah, 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 yeah. our things, priorities things have got out of balance yes, yes. Uh, unless you happen to be a golf professional and that's the only way you can feed <laughs> well, your family sure, sure. yes quite yeah, quite, yeah, quite. Yeah, absolutely but, but no you're right um, anything can become an idol and sometimes some spiritual directors will say to some people you need to ask God directly, is there something in your life which he wants you to hand over? And often people who go into monastic communities, that's one of the deals. What, what, what are we handing over mm. here? And if the answer is, well, no, I'm keeping it all. Well, sorry. Yeah. If you want to live a more intense life with God, there may well be things that have to be given up. And that's the yeah. question. Uh, Daniel is in Stanford, California, and says... What would you recommend to someone interested in coming back to the Christian faith after many years of exile? I do not know if I believe yet, but I know I don't disbelieve anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Mentally and emotionally, it's a very confusing and conflicting time. What should I do? What should I read? Wow. Wow. That's a great question. I mean, because I don't know Daniel personally, I don't know whether he's somebody who normally works out of his intellect with mm. the feelings coming along behind, or whether he's somebody who um, goes into things feelings first mm. with and letting the brain catch up later. And I would recommend quite a different bibliography right. according to which it was. Many people in many parts of America recently have found Dallas Willard's books very mm-hmm. helpful. Um, because I think he and I are quite close in mm-hmm. some ways, I haven't found his style as easy for me yes. to get hold of. But also I think we are quite different personalities. Okay. Um, if somebody is wanting to come back in, then there are all sorts of different ways. And you see some, I remember after the fall of communism, um, there were many young people in Russia who had no faith because it had been drilled out of them mm. in school. We, mm. we don't believe in that stuff mm. anymore. But who instinctively knew they wanted to 
reconnect and didn't know how. And one of the pieces of advice that would sometimes be given to some people would be kneel down in front of a picture of the cross or something or an icon and simply kneel and stay there and perhaps cross yourself and the east would do it like that now to us modern western protestants this is this is ritualism this is terrible but actually what your body does communicates things to you inside and sometimes for some people that can be a way of your body then saying to your emotions and your imagination your mind there is something here about humility before the crucified jesus which actually is going to be the center of my life. Mm. Now, I wouldn't recommend that to no, everybody, no. but I wouldn't disrecommend yeah, it either. Yeah. For some, but, but obviously, for me, I would say this, but I would actually say to anybody and everybody, find a new and different translation of the Bible that you've mm-hmm. not used before mm-hmm. and just set yourself yes. to read it with delight and read whole books as if they were novels rather than reading it um, 10 verses at a time. You wouldn't listen to a symphony like that. We, I mean, we have very little detail, obviously, in, in yeah, this question yeah, yeah. from Daniel, understandably. But it's interesting that he's he's saying he's coming back to the yeah, Christian faith yeah, after many yeah. years of exile. So I appreciate what you're saying there. Of Sometimes what's unique about that story is you you can't go back to the faith that maybe you grew up with or something a- like absolutely. that. Absolutely. People in that situation, I've known many in that situation, the one place they don't want to go back to is the Sunday school where yeah. they were told they were yeah. naughty or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And that's why I say a quite different version of the Bible. Yeah. And just relish it. Um, read it differently. Read it, uh, as I say, in large chunks. Mm. Um, and just see where it takes you. And find a church, a fellowship, where people can meet you where you are yeah. mm. and where you can make good and wise mm. friendships. And if I could recommend a book, Simply Christian, yeah. by one Tom Wright, is a good place to begin as well. Thank you. With, uh, with some, some of the basics and uh, a, an overview of, of what the Christian life is, is about. Um, <laughs> let's go to uh, an anonymous one here. And it's anonymous for very good reason. Uh, this, is, this is a really yeah, tough one. But um, this person says, my wife recently had a miscarriage. And I wonder if it could have been my fault for habitually sinning with pornography and masturbation. I know how God dealt with David's adultery by taking his son's life. So I wonder if God could still discipline us like Mm. that. It's a good question. And I know a lot of people, pastorally, I know a lot of people who have, in our age with the easy accessibility of pornography, etc., have gone that route. It seems to me it's a modern form of idolatry. Mm. Paul talks in the context of sexual misbehavior of covetousness, which is idolatry. And, uh, but in a sense... We are all idolaters at some point. Whenever we say we're sorry, it's because we have secretly worshipped this or that or the other idol, and it's led us down this or the other dark path. And I think anyone who's afflicted with that, it's a form of addiction, Mm -hmm. and and one can get help with all forms of addiction, and there is help available. So that said, I think the idea of God doing something like that as a specific punishment for what this man has done is a very dangerous and potentially damaging view of God. Now, I'm not saying that God, under some circumstances, can't use some sorrow as a way of alerting us to the fact that there's something wrong, you know, uh, if that suddenly makes you feel guilty, well, maybe you need to feel sorry and a bit guilty, and you need to deal with that with some pastoral help. But I wouldn't rush to connect the two. 
I would say if that reminds you that something is amiss with the universe and that makes you think of your own um, wrongness, Mm. then deal with the wrongness, Mm. but don't join them up. So certainly the the advice here is don't, no, you're, the, the miscarriage was not a result of exactly, sin. And, exactly. You know, let's face it, that would indict 99% probably well, of, of young well, Christian men these days well, who have struggled yeah, at some yeah, point yeah, with, with yeah, this issue. Yeah. But of course, he does see that this appears to be what happens in the Old Testament in David's adultery. Now, yeah, what's, what's your take on that? There's many, time? many other stories in the Old Testament which go different ways. God deals with David because he's the anointed king, for goodness right. sake. And David needs his nose rubbing in this at this precise point. Um, and then, strangely, um, the next child to be born is Solomon, and he's yeah. David's successor. Yeah. Um, so what, what's all that about? Yeah. Um, so as with Jesus in John 9, when they find this man born blind, and the disciples say, who was it who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. Mm. Um, and, and there is a sense of please don't rush to make the connection between one particular sin or set of sins and one particular physical result. Mm. And there are many, many things in this world which are not as we would wish, as with miscarriages, as with people being born, born blind, etc., And because we have a strong sense of the justice of God, which is a good strong sense, we all tend to short-circuit the process and Mm. say, ah, if God was just, he wouldn't have done this unless Mm. dot, dot, dot. Mm. Therefore, maybe it's Mm. this. Mm. And I want to say back off, back right off, and be humble before God, talk to a pastor about this, but do not regard this as a one-for-one because really it's not like that. Yeah, so we... Our prayers are with you there. Um, yeah. You obviously have, have not left the name, but um, certainly don't connect this with yeah. the yeah. Ma- miscarriage, but nevertheless, obviously do everything within to your power to, to, yeah. to deal with the issues yeah. Um, yeah. That, that you are aware sure. are besetting. But um, thank you. This is a rather a long one, and that's the, the nature of some of these pastoral questions. So I'm going to give mm-hmm. a, a moment to read this out. John in West Yorkshire, says this week, my 18-year-old nephew Joe died unexpectedly at home in front of his father, sister and grandmother. Air and road ambulances attended, as did the police. However, before the paramedics arrived, my brother, his, uh, his father, dutifully performed CPR. Team of paramedics tried vainly for close to two hours to resuscitate Joe. He was eventually declared dead in hospital. This story is in itself heartbreaking. A family that witnessed the shocking death of a loved one at such a young age and so unexpectedly. Sadly, the story requires some additional context. Joe's mother died from cancer when he was just two years old. My brother never remarried. He stopped working and dedicated his life to raising his two children in the most saintly, committed, patient and loving way. I'm writing this message since I've been slowly reconnecting to my faith after around 20 years of being agnostic. I was born a Catholic and eventually stopped practising upon the death of my father and Joe's mother, who died within a few years of each other. While I cannot say I was fully reconciled to Christ, I enjoyed the exploration of faith I was pursuing, largely stimulated by the Unbelievable podcast. And while I could rationalise my father's death and even my sister-in-law's death, though she was very young, this last tragedy has introduced us to an entirely new sphere of suffering. Half of my brother's family is dead. My mother, who's almost 80, has lost her husband, sister-in-law, now her grandson, who she helped to co-raise with her brother. My mother comes from Italy, born into poverty, suffering during the war. Now she has to deal with this. She's a devout Catholic and performs the rosary almost nightly. Her prayers are simple. She asks God to protect her children and above all her grandchildren. So where was God when my nephew died? 
Why would a loving God permit this type of horror to affect our family? Why has this prayer been so evidently um, unanswered? Um, None of it makes any sense to us all. I look forward to hearing your response. I mean, we're getting even there, I'm sure, a potted history of what's obviously has been an awful situation for all involved. And and John is simply saying, I want to reconnect with my faith, but... When life throws all this at you, it's hard to see how there's a loving God in the yeah, middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I was, my wife and I were sitting with some old friends the other day who we've reconnected with, having come south, who described a particular situation that they were close to and just said, and they're devout Christians, they said, we are having a real struggle seeing where God is in all this. Yeah. And I, I said to them what I say to myself under certain circumstances, um, and it's that word from Elie Wiesel's book, Night, which describes famously the horrible situation in a Nazi death camp um, with a young boy being publicly hanged in front of all these other people and the boy being so frail and thin from malnutrition that he didn't die at once because he didn't have enough weight to, to be hanged properly, as it were. And somebody shouting, where is God? Where mm. is God? Where? Mm. And somebody saying, he is there hanging on that rope. And, and there is a sense at the heart of the Christian gospel that that is the question and that is the answer. That when we say, where is God? Where is God? The Christian answer is, um, love is hanging on a tree. Um, Jesus crucified draws into one the horror and pain of the world and his mother who was probably only 15 years older than him so she'd be Mm. maybe mid-40s or so um, who brought him up and loved him and cherished him is standing there at the foot of the cross having sung her wild song about the time has come Mm. and my soul magnifies the Lord she is in exactly that position Um, and I think all the disciples on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter were just saying that's it. We thought we knew where we were, and it's now all gone horribly wrong. And that was the experience of the Jewish people for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the natural reaction to that would be, well, it's all right, because Jesus rose again the next day. Yeah, they didn't know that at the time. Um, what I have come to realize, I think I said this in an earlier podcast, is that the biblical tradition of lament which is so strong in the Psalms, and in some of them in an unrelieved way, Psalm 88 particularly, the biblical tradition of lament is given to God's people in order to hold on to the pain of the world and their own pain in the presence of God without it necessarily being resolved. Some of the Mm -hmm. lament Psalms do turn around towards the end, 22 being a good example. But um, in the light of the New Testament and the work of the Holy Spirit, And what Paul says about the spirit and suffering in Romans 8 particularly, but not only there, then I think I want to say that one of the reasons God called Israel and one of the reasons why Jesus was Jesus and one of the reasons why we are the church is so that the sorrow of God may be expressed by the spirit in the people of God. That's a really tough thing to say. I attended just over a year ago the funeral of a godson who was in his mid-thirties and was a wonderful Christian man, husband and father, little children, struck down by cancer 
And he died as he'd lived, bravely and with faith and with humor. Mm-hmm. And we went to this. It was, at one point of view, a wonderful funeral. But you're left with this, yes. okay, this should not have happened. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying this as a sort of a heartless yeah, outsider. Yeah, yeah. We, we yeah. in a sense, have all been there. But so I really do want to say, and I've learned this from one of my recent students who's had a lot to lament in her life, but she was studying the Hebrew Psalms and looking at the ways in which part of the vocation of the people of God is to hold on to the pain of God at the heart of his creation, which is a kind of a cruciform pattern. Mm-hmm. And we easily escape back again to the 18th century where people say uh, either God is omnipotent and doesn't care or he's not really competent and so even though he does love, he can't do anything about it. That's a false antithesis. Mm-hmm. We we have in the Anglican tradition at Pentecost a little versicle response which goes, Alleluia, the Spirit of God fills the whole world, Alleluia, which can sound incredibly trite. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, Spirit of God, isn't that nice? And I once preached a sermon beginning with that, and I said, if the Spirit of God fills the whole world, then what the Spirit of God is mostly doing right now is grieving. Because think of Syria and think Mm. of um, Mm. North Africa and think of many, many places in the world. So I want to say it looks as though this is a really, really tough vocation to hold on to the pain of the world in the presence of God. And if that reminds you of Jesus stretching out his two arms on the cross and holding together the pain of the world and the pain of God, then so be it. But mm. I shudder because yeah. I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. Just as we conclude this this section, any practical advice for where what John might do in these circumstances? As someone who's evidently yeah, 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 feels yeah, he's yeah, got yeah, this yeah. fragile faith that he's trying to sort of in some sense come back to. but Again, it must be to share this puzzle and sorrow and horror with a wise local pastor who can share it and hear it and pray with him, etc. Mm. That's got to be the answer. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. You can try for a while, but it's like trying to drive a car with only one mm. tire. You know, mm. sorry, you need the whole kit, yeah. and the whole kit is the larger community of mm. faith. That's not always easy. Some people don't know of a good local church right. that they trust or whatever, but that has to be what yeah. to do. Yeah. John, I hope that helps in some way. Um, it's it's gratifying to know that there are such a variety of listeners to to this podcast, mm, yes, people indeed. who are both well on in the Christian journey, people who are maybe just trying and looking at it to start mm, with. Mm. Um, one final question as we wrap up today's program. Uh, Tim is in Tennessee, uh, says, I have a question about God's spirit indwelling us as it relates to another question. Why aren't Christians more like Christ? Now, certainly, it's much more than a matter of just trying harder. It seems clear we're to be transformed, changed in the core of our being, to become a new creation in which love is our most natural reaction. Yet, I think it's safe to say that the world does not view Christians on the whole as more loving than anyone else. Can you give some practical how-to suggestions regarding our role in being transformed by the Spirit? Wow, yes. I mean... Obviously, the old rules are the best, uh, the Bible, prayer, sacraments, and ministry to the poor. Those four are ways in which in the New Testament we are continually reminded that we should be both serving God and becoming like Christ in doing so. And because we are all different, our personalities are different, um, as Gerald Manley Hopkins said, Christ plays in 10,000 places, that, that there, are, there, are, there are many different facets of what Christ-likeness looks mm. like. And... I have known some strikingly Christ-like people in my life. I've been blessed to know them, and they're quite different. 
Um, but as you've got to know them, something about them has just said, oh, I think I'm looking at a bit of Jesus here. Mm. Um, but but so uh, and knowing the people that I'm talking about, these are all people of prayer and people of quite serious prayer. And one from an, a very evangelical tradition, one from a, uh, a sort of um, orthodox tradition, one from an Anglo-Catholic tradition mm. and different patterns of prayer. But anyone who opens themselves takes the time and trouble and to go to a spiritual director and to learn how to pray and to be drawn out in prayer and to learn how to learn how to pray scripture in such a way that that becomes not just something in the head but something which starts to mm. live inside um and yes sadly many christians give jesus a bad name to yep. put it bluntly mm. and if you look at the new testament seems to be pretty much the same there yeah. you know i'm not sure that everyone looking at all the people in corinth who called themselves christians would have said oh that's what jesus is like <laughs> but with some they seem to have done yes. Yes. um and uh so it isn't just a matter of trying harder but again it's a matter of renouncing the modern western individualism and recognizing we need one another and corporate prayer but also having either a pastor or a spiritual director who can challenge you and say mm. now in your prayers are you doing this had you thought about this and coming from your personality do you realize that this yes. might be a weakness or a problem i mean not, just yeah. to push back ever so slightly as well on on tim's assessment it's safe to say that the world does not view Christians on the whole as more loving than anyone else. I'd say that's true in the sense that most often, unfortunately, in our media, particular characters get yeah, emphasized. Yeah, yeah. And and if that's the view that most people have of a Christian, you can understand it. But sure. when you actually ask people about Christians they know, yes, it's yes. often the opposite. It's yes, often actually, yes. oh, but of course, my friend so-and-so is a lovely person. Is a really nice is, person, is, yes, you know, and yes, done yes, this yes. So I sometimes think there's a rather a difference between the, and, the and media perception and, and the actual that's, reality. That's certainly true in many communities up and down this country, places where I've ministered, where the church is on the street, often below the radar, doesn't get into the news, but most of the food banks in this country are run by mm. Christians as volunteers. Most of the people who go and do prison visiting, etc. not all of them. There are many, mm. many people of goodwill. Mm. But in many communities, it's, it's the Christians who will just notice, oh, so-and-so seems to be sick at the moment. Let's just see what they need and we mm. can help them. Of course other people do that course, as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't have a monopoly no, on no. it. But there are many places where, mm. yes, the church is the church. In, in my work in previous jobs, I've been privileged to see the church being the church in very local, very mm. often run-down communities. And it's a wonderful sight. Mm. Mm. And as I say, people, people do notice. Yeah. Thanks again for the time, Tom. It's been Thank great you. to spend a half an hour or so Thank with you. Thank you. That's great, as and, always. Um, I do hope that if your question hasn't been answered, that um, you'll have benefited at least from some of those that have. And indeed, when it comes to these pastoral issues, that you'll mm. seek out a wise uh, pastor as well to help um, get through them. Um, for the moment, thanks very much for being with me. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yes, indeed. Thank you.